Welcome back, everybody, to the TMT Time Podcast, a production of the Telecommunications Technology Media Group here at Arnold and Porter. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Today, I am delighted to welcome into the podcast someone who knows quite a bit about copyright, and that is Berkeley Law Professor Molly Van Howley. Molly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. Hi, listeners. It's great to be here. Uh, Molly and I always talk to each other as part of the IP Institute here in Colorado every year as co-presenters on the copyright. So there will be some overlap between this podcast and the IP Institute. But on this particular day, I get to ask Molly questions that I don't get to ask her on the IP Institute. We get to learn more about who Molly is. And the first thing that I have for her, as some of you may know, if you get onto Google, is Molly is not just a Berkeley Law professor and not just a copyright expert, but she is also a world champion cyclist. Molly, tell us about that. Sure, Evan. I, I am also at this point in my cycling career a, a middle-aged world champion. So uh, to the extent I have, I have some world championships and some world records now in my age category. So folks who are cyclists might be familiar with masters racing, where we race against other people in our age categories. Um, I was at one point the overall world record holder in an event called, for cyclists, it's really just called the hour. Um, and that means the farthest distance cycled in an hour. So that's probably my, my biggest claim to fame. I held that record quite briefly, but I am in the record books for that. And now I hold the record in my age category. Look, I think that is unbelievably amazing age group or no age group. I don't hold the world record. I don't hold the any record of any kind in anything, probably not even the world's best dad, according to my kids. So uh, I am incredibly impressed that you have to push it hard for an hour. And as Molly knows, and as our listeners know, I'm an obsessive Peloton rider. Uh, Molly doesn't do Peloton, but she does something else. And I can't remember what it's called. What is the bike thing that you do, Molly? That's right. I do Zwift which is another online cycling. And also they have running, uh, treadmill running is possible on Zwift as well. I'm glad I don't do Zwift because I would probably see Molly's times and output and feel really bad about myself. And I wouldn't have time to do the podcast because I'd be trying to catch up to her the entire time. <laughs> uh, all right, well, Molly, you also are involved with Creative Commons too. So what is, tell us about that. Sure. So as your listeners may know, Creative Commons is a nonprofit that's devoted to helping people share their intellectual works. Our most well-known tool to make that possible is our suite of licenses that people can attach to openly license things like their scholarship, for example, or their blog posts or their music or their photographs. And I was, in fact, the first staff member of Creative Commons. Uh, I started working there back in 2001. We really got things off the ground uh, in 2002. And, uh, and so we're kind of ramping up to celebrate our 20-year anniversary at Creative Commons, where I am now I'm no longer a staff member, but I serve as chair of the board of directors. So that's been something nice that has sort of spanned my entire career and helped to launch me on my specialization in copyright law even before I became a law professor. And so I'm really proud to be involved in it. I hope some of your listeners are licensors of Creative Commons licensed works or maybe users and beneficiaries. I actually taught 
my law school class this semester from a casebook licensed under Creative Commons terms. Wow, that's awesome. I'm actually hoping, Molly, that the CU Law School out here in Boulder can get you as a visiting professor one semester here so you can come out, ride your bike around beautiful Colorado and teach our law students at CU a thing or two about copyright. That would be terrific. So put that, that in the back of your mind. Nice. Okay. It's I may there. or may not have some connections. So hopefully we can get you out here. I can, really I can tell you what our listeners can't see it, but Molly's rocking a hoodie right now because she's in San Francisco and in San Francisco at the end of May, it's not as nice as it is here in Colorado. So that's right. It's could, fog season. I could use some of that Colorado sunshine. All right. Well, Molly, you're also involved with the restatement of copyright too, right? Tell us about that a little bit. That's right. So that is a relatively new project of the American Law Institute, which I bet a lot of listeners are familiar with. This is the organization that has the mission of synthesizing and clarifying the law. You may be familiar with the restatement of torts, the restatement of contracts, and so forth. And I am now one of the reporters. There's always a team of reporters that works on drafting restatements, which are then ultimately approved by the entire membership of the American Law Institute, which is made of hundreds of judges and lawyers and law professors. And so I am one of the associate reporters. We have a head reporter and a team of four associate reporters. And we have been working on this for several years now. At the upcoming annual meeting, we will have our first opportunity to present our work to the American Law Institute membership. And I, I bet your listeners will have some inkling of why we think it's valuable to work on a restatement of copyright, because although it is the case that unlike, say, torts, for example, there is a federal copyright statute that, of course, provides lots of the black letter law of copyright, but there are also lots of things that are only really alluded to in the statute, really fundamental things like the standard for infringement for example, or for originality. And that has really become judge-made law. And so just as it's useful to summarize judge-made law of torts and contracts, we're finding it, uh, well, rewarding for us, and we hope useful to our eventual users to be embarked on this project that tries to summarize and synthesize and clarify this, uh, this filling in the blanks that judges do when they confront the Copyright Act. Yeah, this is this is amazing because judges often look to restatements when they're making rulings and, and issuing holdings and such. And we as lawyers that you know do trial work or go into appellate work and say things like, we're gonna make law with this case. You, Molly, with this restatement are actually creating the law and, and creating guidance for this law that ultimately will be made. Well, I, I think we go into this a little more modestly than that. No, it's a restatement of the law, not a creation of the yep. law. So yeah, we hope to, right. to look to the sources of law um, that are out there and to capture uh, as best we can. You know, there are some areas where there where judges haven't said much or they've said inconsistent things, where we sometimes give an opinion about what the most persuasive view is, but in areas where there is lots of law that we can summarize. Um, and of course, do so always with clear reference to the statutory text on which some of that filling in the blanks is based. Um, that's what we're up to. I appreciate the, the modesty, Molly, because, you know, when I 
when I tell people who's going to be on the podcast today, I, I definitely say world champion Molly Van Howling every single time. It's like, you know, every t- you win something like that, you get something like that, you've earned it. And it's like someone who wins the NBA championship. It's NBA champion LA Lakers or <laughs> World Series champion for the rest of your life. That's what you're known as. So sure, I'll you take can it. be modest on the restatement. I'll give you that one, but I'm not going to give it to you on the cycling. All right. So let's turn to some of the copyright cases that have come out here over the last couple months, because there have been some blockbusters, obviously. No kidding. Um, and I think it's probably good for our listeners to let them share in your expertise and hear your thoughts on some of them. And the first one I want to talk about is, I think, the blockbuster, the one that has been pending for nearly a decade and has been referred to by some of your contemporaries as the copyright case of the decade or even the copyright case of the century, I think, by some of them. And of course, I'm talking about Google versus Oracle. Right. We've been waiting. We've been waiting for a long time for this. If you count all the way back to when this started back in 2010 in the district court and has been bouncing back and forth between California and the federal circuit and finally made it to the Supreme Court, which had to reschedule oral oral argument and then finally hear it uh, and decide the case this term. So a lot of back and forth, a lot of time to wait, and uh, a lot of ink has been spilled uh, about what should happen. And it turned out to be Justice Breyer who had the last word. I know. And it was interesting because there was two questions in front of the court here in front of SCOTUS, and they only answered one of them. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Sure. So below the courts had disagreed about two questions. One, the copyrightability of the specific bits of program that were at issue in the case, the declaring code in particular part of the APIs that Google admitted to copying from Oracle. So one question was, is that copyright infringement? It's not, if that's not in fact copyrightable subject matter, if that is one of the things that is excluded from copyright protection because it's an idea or a method or a system. Um, And then the second question was assuming that this is copyrightable, was it not infringement because it was fair use? And again, the courts below had disagreed on both of those questions. They were both presented to the Supreme Court and um, both argued before the court. But given that Justice Breyer decided on the fair use question that there was not infringement, it was unnecessary to also decide whether the material was copyrightable or not. And uh, the dissent took him to task a little bit for refusing to answer what you might view as a preliminary question when you kind of think your way through a copyright case. I'm curious, in fact, Evan, if this is right, if you as a litigator think first about things that we think of as part of the prima facie case, like ownership of a copyrightable work and that the part that was copied was in fact copyrightable before you get to things like fair use, Um, To some, it seems like Justice Breyer started at the end, but of course, finding that there was fair use is a sufficient grounds to to decide the case. And as the Supreme Court often does, he chose not to decide more than he had to. Um, And Evan, I think you have some speculation about whether he only decided what he had the votes to decide. Yeah, that, and you're right on both accounts. As a trial lawyer, you're taught, you know, if, you have to prove A before you can prove B, because if you don't have A, you can't get to B. 
Uh, and that's sort of how you're trained, even in legal writing. You know, as you build your brief, you can't just skip steps or skip spots and get to the, get to the answer you want by skipping things. And here, you know, I did find it interesting that the Justice Breyer said, we're going to assume for the purposes of this opinion that the APIs are, are copyrightable. And then moving past that quickly, let me get to fair use and get to the decision that I think that the court wanted to get to, uh, which a lot of the amicus briefs wanted them to get to. And, you know, we had some strange bedfellows here with Microsoft joining sides with Google on seeking uh, the fair use ruling. Um, but you're right. I do speculate that given what the dissent says and, and the votes that we had, that I don't think Justice Breyer had the votes to issue a ruling that there was both copyright protection for the APIs, but there was fair use. And so I think what happened here is we had sort of a split. Justice Thomas obviously said, okay, I'm gonna, I think he said, I, I will find that it was copyrightable, but there was no fair use. So um, I don't think there was the votes, but the, with, with this split, Molly, how do you think this affects you know, district court judges now that are grappling with how to apply this? Are, are owners of APIs, or do they have guidance from this? Do they need to create some beautiful looking code? I mean, Breyer seemed to go to lengths to say that the API was just sort of the doorway, the connection to allow these programmers down the line to build the Android in this instance. Um, but I think that makes it difficult, at least in my opinion, for uh, copyright holders or potentially copyright holders and APIs who bring lawsuits at the federal district court level? Well, it certainly is the case that in his fair use analysis, Justice Breyer did seem to give less, he wanted to give relatively thin protection, I would say, if any protection at all to the APIs at issue here. It's very interesting and the dissent points this out, Justice Breyer's fair use analysis starts with what the statute lists as the second factor in the fair use analysis. Now he doesn't skip any, he eventually covers them all, but he starts his discussion with number two, which is the nature of the copyrighted work and focuses on that, even though he doesn't say the APIs aren't copyrightable at all, he doesn't decide that question. He does talk about their special nature and the way that they are kind of a, you know, pick your metaphor, a password, a key, the unlocking of the potential to allow developers to build apps for the platform. Um, that seems to be critical really to the entire rest of his fair use analysis, that his observations about the nature of the work seem to inform every other factor. And it's, it's really quite remarkable because the nature of the copyrighted work, it normally gets really quite short shrift in the fair use analysis. Justice Souter famously said in the context of parody that it doesn't help to separate the fair use sheep from the goats and then just went on after uh, not saying much at all about the factor where it seems quite central to Justice Breyer. And yet, I don't think that he gives district courts a lot to go on when they are faced with the copyrightability question, as opposed to using this as a factor in the fair use analysis. So I don't know, I figure a lot of trial courts might follow the Supreme Court's lead and assume without deciding that questionable material is protected by copyright and then move on to do the fair use analysis. It's a really interesting 
kind of flashback to the First Circuit's opinion in Lotus versus Borland decades ago now. This was the hot topic back when I was in law school, where the First Circuit held there with regard to elements of a spreadsheet program that they were unprotectable methods of operation. And Judge Boudin, for whom I clerked later on the First Circuit, I'm, he, good. He I'm glad you dropped that in there because I was going to say, didn't you click for this judge? I did. <laughs> yeah. um, so he concurred, but kind of raised the possibility that this might even better be addressed as a question of, I think he called it privileged use as opposed to copyrightability, taking into account the specific activity of the defendant as opposed to just throwing it out on the prima facie case question of copyrightability. Uh, Justice Breyer, who also hails from the First Circuit and uh, is, is friendly with Judge Boudin, although I have no insight about whether they uh, had any interaction about this, of course, but he cited Judge Boudin several times and I find his approach really inspired by the idea that maybe it's better to consider these questions at the fair use stage where you can really think about the full panoply of issues, not just what did the plaintiff create, but also what exactly did the defendant do? Were they just a ripoff artist who was too lazy to create their own thing? Or were they in fact making something new that's a platform for others to use? And a lot of those factors did seem to matter to Justice Breyer. And by deciding on these grounds, he gets to bring all of that to play. Now, again, Evan, I wonder from your perspective as a litigator, is that just inviting a huge mess because that's just more topics for discovery and, um, and to drag out the litigation? Do you prefer to have something that could be decided earlier on? Yeah, I mean, I, again, our listeners can't see my visceral reaction to that, but I, I mean, that, I, I don't, I find that difficult to put into play in practice because it shouldn't be the defendant's usage, you know, did they, are they giving the platform to others or how do they implement something? If something is copyrightable and copyrighted and protected and someone, a company invested time and money and resources in it, they should have protections and irrelevant, it should be irrelevant to, you know, how or in what nature the defendant used it or okay, it furthered other, because I don't think that's the purpose behind the copyright statute. And I think you're, this analysis may be a little bit backwards because what happens if a district court skips the first step as, as we did here, so to speak, you know, we, we assume, we, let's assume for the purposes of this case that we have a, copy, a copyrightable and the, the, then there's no fair use. Well, if there's no fair use, you haven't answered the first question. Uh, what's the result in that situation? Well, then you don't, you don't get to stop. I think then the analysis really is incomplete. And you're right uh, that that means that Justice Breyer hasn't given as much guidance to lower courts as he might. Um, but that's pretty typical of how the Supreme Court operates, often you know, deciding a legal question and then tossing it below for lots of the facts to get worked out or de deciding just one legal question and not another. So, so I think that is true that he doesn't give as much guidance as he could have, but it is the habit of the Supreme Court really to only give as much guidance as it needs to. The narrowest decision with the least amount of impact. I mean, look, that's a good, good purpose and it's, everyone should be happy that that's how they operate. But 
We don't know how it's going to impact the cases down the line. And in fact, we have one such case to talk about. And the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Molly, to get your thoughts on, which is a not a computer software case, uh, not an API case, but an artistic expression case. And that is, of course, the long-awaited Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith decision, which recently came out of the Second Circuit and now may or may not be going on on bonk. So, you know, Molly, there's an on bonk brief that's now been filed. The uh, appellant has argued that the Google decision should apply to the Warhol case, and we will see if it does. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, case. What do you think about it? Are we going to get a decision that's going to be changed? And of course, obviously, feel free to give us a little bit of background because I've somewhat buried the lead here because uh, you and I are so familiar with this case. Yeah, sure. So uh, to remind listeners who might be familiar with it as well, this is litigation between a photographer who uh, Goldsmith, who took a pretty iconic fo photo of the late artist uh, known as Prince and sometimes known as other things, but let's just call Normally Prince. Normally known as Prince. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was used as the basis for an Andy Warhol silkscreen and uh, a variety of, I think it's fair to call them, derivative works that were based on that photograph that used that photograph certainly as a reference, at least for figuring out what prints look like and not surprisingly, the uh, things that Andy Warhol made uh, look recognizably like the original photo uh, that was used as a reference. And so here, the key question again was whether this use was fair use or not. And the Second Circuit ultimately determined that it was not in a decision that seems like um, a bit of a, a pendulum swing, I would say, from the other recent Second Circuit fair use case that has become well known. And that's uh, confusingly another Prince case here, Richard Prince in litigation as a defendant about his copying of photographs by the photographer Carew, where the Second Circuit held that, um, at least as to some of those photographs, that there was a case for fair use in using the raw material of the pre-existing photograph is really uh, using that as, as raw material for a new expressive work. The Second Circuit held that at least some of those works by, by Richard Prince were transformative and that that was the basis for the possibility of fair use and seemed to really give a lot of leeway under fair use for what is often referred to as appropriation art and many people see the facts of the Warhol case as quite similar in terms of using a pre-existing work as the raw material for something uh, new and that is recognizable as based on the photograph, but also certainly very recognizable as an Andy Warhol and certainly imbued with lots of its own expression and creativity. And under some readings of what it means for a work to be transformative, that seems pretty transformative. And yet the Second Circuit in this case, one, it interestingly characterized Prince versus Carew as the high watermark in its own recognition of fair use. And I can't read that as anything other than a little bit of a, a mea culpa. Yeah, we're, we're going to dial Circuit. it back here a little bit. Yeah, that, that seems to me uh, to I, be what they're saying. It's very interesting because obviously this area is called, you know, appropriation art, and it is a, it is a known field perhaps founded by uh, 
Andy Warhol, which is taking someone else's work and adding your own style and flair to it and creating something new. The thing that's interesting to me, and I think you're probably right on the, the mea culpa, is the, the Richard Prince, the Carrie case. I call that affectionately the blue blob case because what was found fair use there are essentially blue blobs and a blue guitar blob on some Rastafarian art, that's fair use. But then now we're getting, you know, fast forward, not too many years, different panel. And you say Andy Warhol's iconic photos of Prince, which is an entirely different, you know, imbued with an entirely different quality and aspect as the lower court found. Obviously lower court found fair use and it was reversed. Yeah, once uh, again, we have an yeah. instance where the lower court and the court of appeals, lots of, of flip-flopping, giving, I think, some ammunition to critics who say that fair use is hopelessly unpredictable. Uh, well, maybe you can get add some predictability with your the restatement, Molly, but we'll see. But the, in this case, right, so the appellate court dials it back from the carry and and I guess cabins the fair use doctrine a little bit more narrowly. And then we get the en banc brief because this uh, decision came down very shortly before Google versus Oracle. And the en banc brief is very stringently argues that this, this case, this Prince case was decided incorrectly. And as support for that points to the court's guidance in Google versus Oracle, which incidentally enough, we didn't mention this before, Breyer actually obliquely refers to Andy Warhol in his Supreme Court decision. So what, what do you think, what's your take on the en banc brief? What's your take on the, whether the Second Circuit takes it? Where do you think this is going? Yeah, so um, I, I'm nervous. Given what I just said about fair use, it's nerve wracking to go out on a limb with any predictions. Well, this and this is, one, this I, is a podcast, Molly. You got world champion, Molly Van Halen. <laughs> you got to go out on a limb here. You got to make okay, some predictions for our the, listeners. That's the format. Well, I guess if I had to predict, my prediction would be that the Second Circuit does take the opportunity to, um, to consider this one again in light of Google versus Oracle and maybe even to smooth out some of the tension in its own panel decisions in Prince versus Carew versus this case. It seems like whatever you think about the impact of Google versus Oracle, it just seems like something ripe for the Second Circuit as a whole to step back and say, okay, let's bring some clarity to this area where we seem to have been flipping back and forth a little bit over the past several years. Now, as for the impact of Google versus Oracle, on the one hand, of, of course it, it came out the other way and seems to have a more generous attitude about fair use and a more capacious notion of what counts as transformative. The, copying in Google was found to be transformative, even though it was just verbatim copying of the original code, which is interesting. On the other hand, it was arguably copying it for a purpose that was transformative insofar as it served as a platform for developers to build upon, which that's one thing that's super interesting, I think, the extent to which making a new expressive work yourself no longer seems that transformative in the eyes of the Second Circuit, that is arguably different from using a work in a way that is a platform for other people's creativity, which Google could argue that it was doing. So, so that's one way in which the cases could be distinguished. I would also say we've already talked about how much Justice Breyer made of the nature 
of the copyrighted work in Google versus Oracle. And that's very different from the nature of the copyrighted work here. So you could argue that Google versus Oracle is very specific to computer software, to interfaces, to APIs, to declaring code, to all of the things that um, Justice Breyer made note of is in his opinion. And the dissent makes a case for this, I think drops a footnote to say, as much as we don't like this, let's note how particular it is to this particular type of copyrighted work. So I think that the, the plaintiffs in Warhol versus Goldsmith could come back with a strong counterargument to the en banc petition to say that Google versus Oracle is very specific to computer software. But if I were in the Second Circuit, given what I see as at least a little bit of tension between this case and the Prince versus Kiryu case, I might think that Google versus Oracle, at least it's a, you know, it's a, it's a handy excuse or, or prompt or opportunity let's call it, to take a second look to make sure that what they're doing is consistent with what they've done before and consistent with what the Supreme Court is saying. And there is one thing in the Warhol opinion that I would particularly urge the Second Circuit to take another look at. There's some language in there that suggests that the categories of derivative work and fair use are mutually exclusive that if something is a derivative work, it cannot be a fair use. And I don't think that's right. And in fact, I think the opinion as a whole belies that idea because I would argue that the Warhol work here was clearly a derivative work. And yet the court went to the trouble to analyze all of the fair use factors. And so I think it's really just a, a misstatement inconsistent with its own analysis to treat these as mutually exclusive categories. They're not mutually exclusive any more than reproduction and fair use are mutually exclusive or public performance and fair use. Of course, in all of these cases, the exclusive rights of the copyright owner are implicated, but there's still the possibility that there is nonetheless fair use. And I think that can be just as true for derivative works. Oh, this is why I love the podcast format because that rant that you just went on was awesome. And when the Second Circuit does take this en banc, I agree with you, they're going to accept it. Uh, I'm going to call you and we're going to come up with an amicus brief on the or latter point there. Because I agree with you, I think the Second Circuit should address it. I think it's an inconsistency and I think it was wrong. And uh, I think you have a lot to say on this and I think the court should hear it. Well, we could also just refer them to your podcast, Evan. Yeah. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. I'm going to transcribe this. All right. Well, we're running up against the clock, Molly. So I have a couple of final things to throw at you, which first one is favorite state to ride your bike in. I now this is going to seem like a, a plant, uh, but I think I will genuinely say that Colorado is my favorite state to ride my bike in. I've spent quite a bit of time there. In fact, my my mom is a Denver native and I still have lots of relatives uh, in the area. I am in fact a big fan of CU and have made it out there and uh, have done events in Colorado and uh, it's incredible. Although I will say on left-hand Canyon Road coming out of Boulder, Boulder is the yeah. one time in my life that I have been blown off of my bike and had to kind of cower 
in a ditch because I couldn't even stand back up. I just kept getting blown over again. Wow. So that wasn't my favorite episode, but it was worth it. I've actually read it through in there. And this was not a plant. I love that answer. Now you're my new favorite guest. Thank you for for uh, extolling the virtues of Colorado. We are one of the best bike riding states, so I'll give it. What about favorite country? I assume you've ridden in places around the world. Where do you else do you like to ride? Yeah, I um, I do have a favorite uh, other place to ride and that's Spain. My husband and I have spent a lot of time over the years on our breaks from teaching in Spain, both on the mainland in an area called the Costa Blanca, south of Valencia, where lots of professional teams have their training camps there. And uh, we initially went as cyclists and fans. It was thrilling to run into professional teams there and to ride the same roads that they ride. And uh, we've also gone for several years to the island of Mallorca uh, off the coast of Spain. And that is spectacular as well. All right, when, when world champion Molly Van Halen is not on the bike, not in front of the classroom of students, not working for the Creative Commons and not working on the restatement of copyright, what are you reading? So I am right now reading um, Hamnet, which is a novel about, it's historical fiction, I suppose, about William Shakespeare uh, and his family and his son Hamnet. So uh, that is part of what I'm reading in my spare time. I am also via the internet giving um, occasional lessons to my seven and eight year old nephews. So uh, let's see, for that purpose, I am reading, I am playing uh, a game called Kids Against Maturity uh, and reading things like, oh, let's see, I'm looking at the bookshelf now. Oh, Iggy Peck Architect. That's a good one, highly recommended. Love it. All right, well, Molly, this has been a delight. Really appreciate you spending the time with us and our listeners, and me, and it's great to get to know you more. Molly, thanks so much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Hope to do it again sometime soon. All right, everyone. Remember to hit the like button, thumbs up, whatever you have to do, download, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it.